You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi everyone, Paul here, and just a quick message from me to let you know that if you are looking to improve the performance of your team, no matter whether it is a work, sporting, or community one, then we've developed some tools to help. On the website, you will find our Thriving Teams Diagnostic, which uses insights from the more than 200 great coaches we have interviewed to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. This is a chance of lifetime. When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal. We are all on the same team. Know your role and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again. Your defense has got to be better. Leave no doubt tonight. Great moments are born from great opportunity. My name is Paul Barnett, and you are listening to The Great Coaches Podcast, where we interview great sporting coaches to try and find ideas to help all of us lead our teams better. Our great coach on this episode is basketball coach Olaf Langer. Olaf has won two EuroLeague titles as a coach, as well as 12 national championships across Germany, Russia, and Spain. He has coached both the German and Russian women's national teams, as well as presently being an assistant for the Australian team. He has also had numerous stints as an assistant coach in the WNBA in America, where he is presently an assistant with the Chicago Sky team. Olaf is a coach who has that rare ability to zoom out and be strategic, and then in the next moment, zoom in and engage with his athletes at a very personal level. In this interview, we talk about these skills and how he has used them across three different continents to deliver elite performance. The highlights for me were his thoughts on how you can score with only having two to three offensive players, but in defense, you must have all five participating if you are to win and build a team mindset. How great coaches do three key things. They find ways to elicit buy-in from their players, They understand the importance of defence and they build a team around their players rather than having the players adapt to the coach's system. And he also talks about not overcoaching from the sidelines because it's the players who have to make the decisions in real time on the court. 
This was a fun and engaging conversation, and I hope you enjoy it as much as Jim and I did. The Great Coaches Podcast. Olaf Lang, good afternoon, and welcome to The Great Coaches Podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Very honored, very humbled. So I um, hope we're having a good time. Olaf, we're, uh, we're excited to have you on too, because we love talking a little bit of basketball and we're going to cover three continents today. We're going to, when we talk to you about basketball, but before we get into any of that, which is something really simple to kick off, can you let us know where you are in the world today and what you've been up to so far? Well, I'm currently in Phoenix, Arizona, where I reside with my wife and, and kids. Um, I've just recently um, finished uh, the last WNBA season where I've coached for the Chicago Sky. It was a very unique season, as we all know, in these pandemic times. We, we played it in a bubble in, in, in Florida, and it was a very unique yet very fatiguing experience because the schedule was, was, was so condensed that there wasn't really much else to do other than to coach and sleep. So I just uh, been winding down from the season and uh, getting ready for my off-season projects, whatever they may be. Could I ask you a question without notice about the bubble? Sure. How did you manage the tension? Because you're all living together and training together and playing together. Was there heightened tension? And if so, how did you release the pressure? Well, I mean, it, there was, you mean pressure with other teams or the pressure to perform? What pressure are you referring to exactly? Probably, probably just more the interpersonal pressure because you're all living with each other, playing with each other. Like, how did you get a break from it and de Well, you, you really didn't. Um, uh, it was unique because you, you got more in touch with coaches from other teams, from players from other teams. You formed relationships that you probably would have never formed in other than this situation. So you you go to lunch, which was a buffet type of thing. You grab your food, you run into five other people, three other coaches. You have a chat here, you have a chat there. So in a way, it was very relational and it was a, a very unique experience. Obviously, the condensed schedule didn't allow us to, you know, um, do too many things because as coaches, you have to go back and, and scout or prepare the next team or analyze the last game you played. Um, so it was very intense, but it was kind of unique. And the setup there at IMG Academy in Florida was just fantastic for this kind of thing we did. And the WNBA did an amazing job um, organizing everything. It was, it was very unique. Well, I guess you had firsthand experience at the buffet bar of some great coaches You've also, as I said in the opening, you've coached on three continents and you've had firsthand experience working alongside some pretty good coaches as well. There's James Wade, there's Kerry Green, and of course, your wife, Sandy Brondello, who you've coached with on numerous occasions, and she's coached with you. My first question is, what is it you think these great coaches do differently? Well, um, it's a good question. I, I ask myself right now, I'm in a personal position where I'm, um, I'm an assistant coach. Again, I work with uh, James White with the Chicago Sky. I've been probably over the course of my 25 years more head coach than I'm assistant. I've been blessed enough to work with great coaches and then also I'll be able to head coach myself. So I've been asking myself the same question over the years because you want to improve yourself. You want to get better, would get an edge and, um, it's a very difficult question because there's so many different coaches and good coaches I work with. Their personalities vary greatly. And uh, it's not easy necessarily to boil down these traits and attributes they have and into uh, like a simple bullet list. However, ignoring a little bit the different personalities, I, I came down with 
three things that I think they um, they do really well, and some of them are a little bit more specific to basketball because I think that our game, especially the way it's developed over the last couple decades, uh, the way the rules have impacted the game, analytics, things like that, our game has certain specifics. So some of them are a little more specific to the game and others are a little more broad. So I want to start with a broad one. So I think the, the great coaches find ways to elicit buy-in from their players. And when I say buy-in, buy-in is a widely used word or term recently and over the years, even in, in companies, they use it now. Buy-in for me is that players accept and they're willing to support and participate in the team goals and most importantly in the system. The good players are, they've played for so many years, they have a very strong opinion themselves. So they have to be able to put these opinions to the side and submit to the system that we or the coach wants them to execute. Um, so it's, it's essentially to elicit by and essentially it's about leadership. And I think great coaches find ways to use their own personality to mesh with the players they have and get a way for them to buy into the system, to buy into them, to buy into the team's goals. One aspect of that is also that, you know, as a coach, especially a great one, you need to be demanding. When you're demanding, you have to find ways to deliver your message in a way that players can receive them. And that was different. I mean, I coached for 20 years. I coached um, players like Michelle Timms, my wife. That generation, you could get after in a very different way than the generations we have today. So as coaches, I think we have consistently have to change adapt and find ways to deliver the message in different ways to get players to buy in uh, into the system uh, rather than checking out. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges for us as coaches. And I think the great coaches do that better than anybody. The second point I think they do well, that is very uh, somewhat specific to at least ball sports or games is they understand the importance of defense. And especially in our game of basketball, defense is, is so difficult because the game is so athletic and you can basically can't touch anybody physically. So it's very difficult to play defense on a higher level. But all teams that are successful and statistics are very clear are great defensive teams. If you take the uh, seven of the last eight WNBA champions are our top three on the defensive side. Defense is difficult because we all gravitate towards offense, players, coaches, fans. And I think it stems from um, when we start playing a game, whether it's netball. I played soccer. I'm German, so we have to, we have to play soccer. Otherwise, we get kicked out of the country. That's the first sport. Whether you play soccer or you play basketball, you want to score a basket. You want to score goals. You don't start playing the game to defend. I mean, nobody does that. So... By the nature of the, of the game itself, we all gravitate towards offense. But when you come to professional ranks and you need to win to stay the job, you need to win um, or you want to win, you want to win championships, you need to become a good defender. You need to be able to coach defense and you need to commit to the defensive side. And I think the great coaches find ways to get their players to commit to play defense uh, more than they want to. And then my last point I want to make is Great coaches build their team around their players rather than having their players adapt to their system. 
And I think that's uh, in her, mostly the case in, in, the, in the pro world. Because, uh, and again, women's basketball, that is uh, my core business, is, is unique there because we, uh, we have players that either play in Europe and when they're not playing in Europe, they're playing in US and it's pretty much all year round type of deal. And that means times are shorter that you have with your team. They also play in multiple systems usually because they either play national team or they play club or they play WNBA. So they're influenced by different coaches and different systems. So we have less times and higher pressure, higher expectations. So in short times, we have to find a way to be successful. And I think it is very important in this setting for any coach to find and tweak their own system to the players that ha they have rather than having their players to adapt to their system because there's just no time anymore. Great example of that is the Dallas Mavericks currently. Um, Rick Carlisle, for example, he was, throughout his career, he was known for a fast-paced, ball-movement type of guy. Now he has Luka Doncic, and what did they do there? I think 20th or 18 or 20th in the W and in pace, they play much slower, the ball is more in one person's hands, and the result is they have the one record-breaking offense. They're the number one in the NBA in offensive rating, and they're one of the most exciting teams nowadays. So it's a good example where coaches adapt to the players they have. It's probably the most in-depth answer we've ever had, Olaf. Thank you. And it's fascinating too, this focus on defense first. And I, I want to come back to it a little bit later on where we talk about your particular style and philosophy and how you've, you've used that to build results. I'd like to actually ask you about the role of the coach because when you watch basketball, the coach almost seems to be the sixth player. They're calling yeah. the shots. You know, They are taking control of the play. They are directing traffic. And it's, it's a much more involved uh, role than other sports. So I guess my question is, you know, in basketball, how would you describe the role of the coach? Well, that's an excellent question. I asked myself that many times when I evaluated my own way of coaching, especially on the sidelines, whether I, by nature, I'm a little bit more calm and um, composed, but I sometimes thought, should I be more of a ping pong ball on the side and call every play? We coaches and basketball coaches get sucked in in this kind of uh, way of coaching because of the little bit more influence we have on the sideline. There's timeouts, there is constant substitutions. You can even pull a player out, talk to them directly, send them right back in. Um, then there's drawing up plays at the end of games um, where you directly can impact the game. I think basketball is unique. If you look at other sports, I think the impact is much, much less. But still, if you look at the great coaches, Phil Jackson, he barely did anything. He sat there and his players executed, read the game. And I think that is still the key role of the coach. I would say, for me personally, I would say 80% of my job is done by the time the tip-off happens. Uh, I have to, to prepare the team well. I have to get them physically prepared, mentally, tactically but the game itself is played on the floor. And I hated point guards that dribbled down the floor and looked over their shoulder and what the heck I was calling or not calling. I think it takes away from the game. It's a player's game. They have to make decisions in split seconds and they have to get better at making those decisions. I mean, when I coached earlier in my career, I had two really, really good guards. I mean, they're both Australian, so, so you're very familiar with them. Um, Michelle Timms and Sandy Brondello, and I was a very young coach at 25. I don't think I hardly made a call. They had the team in perfect control. Um, it was good. So um, other times when I coached Russian national team later in my career, 
I have point guards who are very poor that I called more. I think sometimes the coach has to fill certain gaps, but the ultimate goal as a coach always for me is to become redundant. Our goal is to create an environment, to set high standards, uh, make sure we, we as a team adhere to the process and play the best to the best of our abilities. And then in the game, I think we should be more of a guardian that we and our team plays the right way. And we can't be sucked in by the temptations, especially in our game, to overcoach from the sides because eventually uh, it, will get you, it will get you beat because uh, the game is so fast-paced that the players have to make decisions and they have to get better at doing them. I'd like to talk about making yourself redundant, actually, if I could, because you begin your professional coaching career in 1995 with Upatal. You become the head coach in 98. Uh, and then, 97, yeah, 97. Pardon, 97. It doesn't make a difference, yeah, one year more or less in the scheme of things. But then, the te- No, but the team goes on this amazing – This team, the team goes on this amazing run you know, five consecutive championships. <laughs> and so you must have done something at that time to set up that team that it was just running so well. And I'd, I'd like to ask the question, can you remember back what it was that you did when you first set up that team? Well, first of all, I think I didn't screw anything up. I think I think that was the biggest thing I did. Uh, I was 25 at the time. I was uh, not the youngest head coach in, in, in the EuroLeague at the time. We had actually uh, won the Euroleague in 1996, and we were runners-up in 97. So we had a we had a very good core in place. Um, I think the reason I got the job is because uh, the club faced budget cuts for 40 percent, and I think I was uh, the easier, cheaper version. But hey, I I took the opportunity and ran with it, and I uh, kind of set my career, uh, gave my career a good start. So I had. A very good core, although we missed some players. Uh, Michelle Timms left at that time, and uh, some of our German, older German players who lost them to retirement. But we had still a core of four or five people in place that knew how to win. Uh, our culture was in place. So it wasn't so much what I did, but what I learned. Uh, I learned that the, the culture is as much driven by the players than it is by the coach. And if the key players and the coach work hand in hand and understand each other, the culture is is pretty much drives itself. Literally, I just kept doing what we did. I had developed good relationships with the key players when being an assistant um, through player development. And I think later I will uh, elaborate a little bit on, on the big role player development played for my career and I think should play in any coach's role as as they either go up the ladder or want to help, want to find other ways to influence or help influencing their players. So I had great relationships and I, and I found ways to add to what we lost with, with new players. And we just, we just kept rolling. But I think the key pillars of our culture that were in place and that we just had to reemphasize were discipline, hard work, which are very German traits. So that was right there from the Germans. So we had Aussies that kind of go along uh, that same kind of lines. We really made sure, and I made sure that as well, we stayed away from Americans at that point because there was uh, uh, other things to deal with. And uh, we, we played unselfish. We had team plays. And again, throughout my whole career, it was always a defense first. So I got a little lucky, but 
I was uh, humble enough to learn early on. And um, I think I learned as much from them as they learned from me, probably. I learned more than they did. But yeah, we, we did all right. You, I think you're very humble because that was the starting point of many, many years of success. And I'd like to step through it with you if I could, because you, you go from Wuppertal up to Spain. You're the assistant coach with Liberty. The team wins the Super Cup in 2004. And the head coach at that time, Kerry Green, says, Olaf's strength lies in his passion for the game and players, as well as in a sensitive heart and discernment. And I thought that was a wonderful, a strange, but also a wonderful thing to say, like to have a sensitive heart and a sense of discernment. So I'd like to ask you, how do you manage to have a sensitive heart, a connection with the, the players and the empathy that, that that word alludes to, but still give them the feedback that they need and make the tough calls to push them along um, in their development? Well, that's an excellent question. And I'm, I'm still stunned, Paul, that uh, you came up with this question. In many years, I've never... I've never been asked this question, um, and it speaks volumes to your uh, to your skills as a as a researcher and podcast host. I mean, um, you pretty much boil it down to I think the key question of my career. I think I've asked myself this question many times. Obviously, been been challenged. I, I realized that discernment or my discernment, or better word for me, I mean, because. Discernment is really a Coach Green word, I have to admit. For my, the word I would use is more intuition. Um, I have a very strong intuition. Any, any gift can be a strength and it can be a weakness. So I decided early on that I'd rather look at it as a strength rather than a weakness, and I tried to build on it as a strength and find ways to improve upon the weaknesses of it. So intuition for me was an invaluable tool because it always allowed me to have a sense about what was going on in a team without knowing all the details. So I could look at certain behaviors or certain little things that I could have a very good feel and sense of what was going on without knowing really what were their specifics. Obviously, uh, it helped me caring for the players a lot. And I think, I think the players realized that I was caring for them and it helped me in my ability to elicit their best performance uh, out of them. When it came to making the tough decisions, I think I, ha I had to learn. I had to learn uh, to make them. I think my, my upbringing helped me a lot. My father was a policeman. He was a cop and he was always a person that was kind of um, very disciplined, but he always was about doing the right thing. So doing the right thing, whether you liked it or not, was always a big theme I grew up with. So for me, I had instilled in me, yes, I had intuition, but I also had this other part of me that knew you have to do the right thing, whether you're comfortable or not. And I think this pulled me through uh, being able to make hard decisions. And I throughout my career, I had, made, I had to make very, very hard decisions where uh, players that was, had very, very good relationships ended up not talking to me anymore because they were so hurt. Not because I did it wrong, just because they didn't expect me to make those kind of decisions. And I kind of did it because I thought it was the right thing to do. And in a way, I, I'm still to this day learning to do this better and better. But um, it's like going to the gym. You don't go to the gym once and you're fit for life. You have to commit yourself to a training process and stay in shape. And that's the same with these kind of these kind of things, you have to commit to doing the right things and, and improving upon those things over and over again. To this day, I think I'm, I'm learning, but I just recently got a 
got a very nice uh, inadvertent compliment from one of my players in, in Chicago. And I'm new to the team. It was my first season there. This player said to uh, to another coach in my presence, he said, oh, Coach Olaf, he's a straight shooter, but I love him. I, I, I guess I'm doing all right to be able to merge both to the best of uh, the, the team of coaching, to, to be caring yet being able to tell it as it is. You take this learning, you take this success in Spain, the success, success in Germany, and you take it up to Russia and you have probably the most successful period so far in your career. Six years as the head coach with Ekaterina Burke. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Ekaterina Burke, yeah. Ekaterina Burke. And you lead them to five straight Russian Premier League championships from 2013, but also two EuroLeague titles. This is an amazing run. This isn't a fluke. And this is the second time in your career it's happened. And the question I'd like to ask is, how did you keep the level of drive high enough in that team so they kept moving forward and they weren't complacent? And in your words earlier, they kept growing. Well, well, you know, when we when we took over the team, they had the best players and the highest budget. ECAT, we call them ECAT in, in the business. Uh, Ekaterina, ECAT um, had for years the highest budget in in the women's side in, in, in the EuroLeague, but they had a history of underachieving. So when, when, when we came in, it was about figuring out what went wrong all the years before, what we need to do different, how to set the team up for success. And at the same time, we, uh, Diana Tarasi was also um, signed as a player. So we came in as a coaching staff and, and she came in at the same time. And for, the, for your listeners who don't know Diana Tarasi, that is, uh, it's like the Lionel Messi or the Michael Jordan of women's basketball. She is the greatest of all time. She is uh, a tremendous player. And I remember this conversation her and I had maybe three weeks in. We looked at each other and she said, now you know why they never win. And I said that yeah, you're right, um, because there were so many things. There were good players. Um, we had, you know, all these great players, but that didn't fit right. And the whole culture, practice culture, uh, wasn't right. So we had to change the way we, we practice, the way we adhere to the process, the way we took relying on talent out by focusing on the core thing, which was playing basketball and uh, having high standards. And I think it really helped that our best player, Diana, was kind of a Michael Jordan, like a late Michael Jordan for Phil Jackson. She understood that only as a team you can win. So we pushed the envelope. Uh, We instilled the same principles that worked for me personally in in Wuppertal. And uh, I had our best player, on my side. There's this in, in basketball, I don't know if that's common in other sports, but we have this this saying, and it goes like this, if your best players are not your best leaders, you won't go where you want to go. And we were very fortunate that my best player, not just the best player in the game of women's basketball at that time, she was our best leader. And so together, we were able to put that train back on track and uh, never stop rolling. And one thing I realized is that these players, they may be the best players. We have the best players from the United States. We have the best players from Europe and the best Russian players. They all want to get better. Um, they all want to 
still perform on a higher level. So I used also player development again as a key motivating factor to prevent complacency. We worked with each player individually. We put a lot of time in. We made sure that everyone had a role with everybody contributing, everybody improving almost on a daily basis, complacency was not our problems. We had problems like many teams, but complacency uh, wasn't one of them. And I think looking back, we should have won more Euro League titles, but I'll tell you that it wasn't because of complacency. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Olaf, you mentioned in that answer there, you said you implemented the principles you had at Wuppertal. Yeah. Are you able to distill or describe what those principles are? Well, it's always it's always a combination of um, you got to honor the process. Like to practice on a higher level on a day to day basis is the key. And obviously, with more talent, that is a little bit more of a challenge because uh, the the human nature is uh, to do what's just enough. So we have to set high standards and we have to elicit that. Again, this works when you have players that support you. This is why I talked about that earlier when I talked about great coaches. You have to elicit buy-in. And I had the best players on my side uh, and I found ways to have them uh, reiterate that message to the team. So within, within a couple of weeks, we came, became a much better a much better practice team than they had ever been before. One key factor for that was, but that was a little bit uh, unique to this group, is that we didn't over-practice. The European practice culture at this time was two-a-days, 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 which pretty much kills any passion you have for the game because it becomes so uh, so monotonous from practice to practice that there is no passion. So what we did, we practiced less, but more intense. And the players really picked up on that because their passion came back, their competitive nature came back to it. And uh, we really excelled. So practice and the discipline to practice on a higher level on a daily basis is, is number one. Number two is ball movement and player movement and getting everyone involved. And I think uh, many coaches talked about that, that your best players have to be uh, facilitators they can be ball hawks especially in ball games so we really um, made sure that the ball moved our system was built in a way that um, we weren't relying on individual talent but we were relying on execution and sharing the ball amongst the team and then thirdly 
playing defense, a defense first mentality, which is probably and always is the biggest challenge for any coach to get the players to play defense. But the defensive side is so important in basketball, not just because it's so hard to defend, it's also offensively in our game, you can get away with three, three or five, we have five players on the court at one time. And sometimes you can get away with three players playing great basketball and offense and you score and nobody, even the fans wouldn't notice that two others are not involved. Defensively, that doesn't work at all. If you don't play with five players, your defense sucks. So five player, a defense is always a five player event. So to me, defense is not just an essential to win. It's an essential tool building a team mindset because only when you defend together, you are successful on the court. And when you defend together, you play together. So for me, these three things were the key, key cornerstones that are instilled and it worked well. Olaf, you've, You've coached across Australia, Germany, Russia, Spain, now the USA. You've also coached the national team of Russia. You're an assistant now with the Australian team, the Opals. I believe you've also coached the German national team. I did, yeah. So I think you're somewhat of an expert at <laughs> of adjusting your style to fit different cultures. And I could wonder if you could just talk a little bit about some top tips you would give people in adjusting your style to, to get the feel of a new culture in a team. Ooh, um, tch. well, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know if there's so many differences. I, I think basketball is basketball or whatever the sport is. Um, there's usually some tangible things you can grasp that the most uh, important one for me stood out where tangibly every game in every continent, in Europe, it's even worse. Uh, I'll get to that in a second. Is the officiating is different. Each country has its own interpretations of how the game has to be played, and that's usually reflected by the game, how the game is officiated. And that has a much bigger impact on, on certain things on the floor, on the field, than um, might would think if you only coach one continent. But I mean, I came to Australia, for example. It was the most physical type of basketball I've ever seen. I think it must come from this uh, footy culture that it is great to be physical. And there, I was sometimes looking at the games and I was going, my God, that is more the boxing contest than basketball. And the spectators are going, this is great. And I'm going, how is that great? We can barely move from A to B without two players holding us. But eventually we adjusted. I figured out what works better in physical situations and not better. But then on the other end, in the United States here, you can't barely touch each other, you know, and then Europe is somewhere in between. So the officiating has a big impact on how the game is played. And there are certain things that are done in a certain way in different continents. And I think when you come in, uh, you better have an open mind and you don't come in like a racehorse with these, what are these things called on the side? So the horse doesn't see right or left. Um, Blinkers. Yeah, I think knickers. Yeah, I think it's important to, to have an open mind, to talk to people and figure out what the particular differences are. And to me, officiating was one. And I, I realized that pretty, pretty quickly and we find a way to adjust. And then there are less tangible things. That are a lot, they are the deeper and that's more relevant to person-to-person interactions. Uh, and they, they come from deeper cultural norms and, you know, behavioral patterns that people brought up. So, for example, uh, what I had to learn, like, 
uh, give you an example. Like uh, a, a level of honesty an Australian player can take is way bigger or higher than, for example, a Russian player. Okay, and that has to do how, especially on my side, how, how they've been brought up. And I think the Americans are somewhere in between. Uh, so you have to figure out how to talk to people, uh, how to talk to your players to be the most effective coach, to get them to do what you want them to do or what's the best for the team. So I think you have to be, in the beginning, be a good listener, be, be slow to talk, Make sure you, you talk to all sort of people, not just to your key players, to management, talk to your, um, everyone down the hierarchy and uh, be a good listener in the beginning. And then um, you'll figure out pretty quickly how you have to adjust either whatever you do on the floor, but most importantly, what you have to do in terms of human interactions to be the most effective leader. You've been coaching since 1989 when you were 17 years old. What, what do you like so much about coaching? Oh, I, I love the challenge. I love helping people to get better, to get what they want. I love putting a team together and um, go through the process of everybody giving up their own individual agenda and coming together as a team. And it's always a riddle. It's a puzzle. I love, I love the challenge. And quite frankly, I'm, I love to be be involved in the team, the, the camaraderie, the togetherness that comes from um, going after a common goal. Um, I think it's a good meta. It's a great metaphor for life because anything of of real value is never done alone. It's always done in a team, whether it's your family at home or the big the big issues and the big problems we have in the world that we need to solve we're only going to solve them as a team and not as individuals so i love that and um i don't think i will stop doing it you say there you don't like doing things alone you know together and of course your wife coaches basketball and there's been times where sandy has been your assistant and there's been other times like right now in the australian team where you're her assistant and on top of that it's fascinating that you've both moved countries to support each other's career. So it's not directly a coaching question, but I'd still like to ask it. Are there any routines or things that you both do to stay in sync on and off the court? Well, I mean, we get, I get that question. We get that question a lot. It bugs people. People cannot understand how this works. You know, some people say, I could never, uh, I, me, me, I could never work with my wife. And, you know, so I get, we get that quite a lot. And I think it's, um, it is unique in a sense. Uh, it is also, I think, because of the personalities we both are. I think we have both have a very strong passion for the game of basketball. We both love it very very much so we understand this passion um, in each other we are both family first type of people so we know that while we love basketball it's always family first so we 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 naturally support each other now we have kids our kids go everywhere and you know it's never been been a hard thing for us and then besides being husband and wife we're also best friends and i think these three things these three pillars have always pulled us through and um, uh, even when things got tough, but you know, certain things that we do regularly, I can't tell you. We, we speak about basketball almost every day. There's not a day goes by we don't speak about basketball. Um, I think 
that helps. But I think these three pillars I mentioned are really key for us to, to keep everything on track. And because we're both coaches, it works because we really understand the business. And uh, we don't get offended by things other people would. I mean, I tell you literally in the, in the bubble, like when we both so in, enthralled and engaged in basketball, there may be three days where we, or two days where we don't talk to each other and nobody gets offended. And in other relationships, I think that will be difficult. Maybe it's the shared passion that it keeps is, you in sync there. Yeah. I'd like to just uh, take you, it, it's a quote and it's actually, it's not an unusual, it's not a unique quote. You know, you said you want to, if you want to reach something big, you must set big goals. But what I would like to ask you about is, is there a, a person or even a team that you can talk about where through helping them stretch, aim higher, have a bigger aspiration, you were able to dramatically improve performance? Yeah, it, because that quote you probably pulled where, where I used it the most, it's, uh, I used that quote with the Russian national team when I took over the Russian national team. And when I took the job, I knew this would be a very, very challenging job because there were Russia and women's basketball has a a very, very long tradition of uh, gold medals and championships and uh, a lot of uh, success in women's basketball. However, through um, through the fall of the uh, USSR, and, um, there was a big gap, almost a generational gap, where there was no funding for women's basketball. And then this gap eventually reached the top level of, of women's basketball, where they had problems to qualify for Olympics. Uh, they weren't at the top anymore. But at the same time, in, uh, in the Federation, there were still very high expectations. So I knew going into this job that there were high expectations to you know be again in the Olympics and potentially win medals. And at the same time, I saw the talent level of the team, and it wasn't there. It wasn't there to support those expectations, but uh, it wasn't. It was not my place to decide about expectations. But it was my place to coach the team. I knew this was a very, very challenging um, job uh, because of the outset. But I love challenges, and I've never shied away from any. So I took it on. So I I sat down. I thought, well, how how do we gonna do about this? Um, and then I said, well, playing small is certainly not gonna do it. So the only thing to do this is um, if we take it head on and we just try to stretch ourselves. So that's where I used this. I used it with that team. I used to set high goals. Obviously, I didn't go run around and tell the team that they are not good enough, or at least the perception, the outside perception at the beginning was. Uh, so we, uh, we had 18 months to prepare for our Euro basket in 2019, and uh, we, we broke it down. And in actionable steps and the, the, the uh, issue was wasn't just tactical shortcomings there were quite significant uh, psychological issues meaning there were the team was in different parts some parts of the team weren't talking to each other or at least not playing for each other or with each other we had a lot of self-doubt in players and teams and um, you know, fears of not being good enough. And, and the reason for that is also very explainable because um, Russia has a lot of money in women's basketball and they get all these foreigners. So the domestic players, even the best domestic players, 
play a, play the second fiddle. So they never take responsibility or get being responsible for the outcome of a game. It's only hand of the foreigner. So these players over years and years and years playing in their domestic league were pretty much used to it doesn't matter what I do. I'll be on the team and I'm not responsible for the end result. So they had developed a way to get by. But now the national team where we, we had no import players, you had to almost now had to make decisions. You, the, you had the responsible, the responsibility uh, for the outcome. So we worked a lot on, um, you know, dealing with self-doubt. I think I've never workshop more with any team than, than with this national team. And over the course of the, t- over the time, we improved quite a bit. It, eventually, we, um, you just fell short. We didn't reach our ultimate, ultimate goal. I think we uh, lost the game against Sweden by just a couple of points. That was the game to make it to the pre-Olympics. But we made it to the quarterfinal in the process. And I never thought of it in the beginning that we were a quarterfinal potential. And I think while we didn't make our... Reach ultimate goal. The improvement and the growth of the team and its members was beyond what I anticipated. So I felt personally, while the outside view was not necessarily a success, personally I look at this team and I thought we we have pretty much reached more than we set out to do. And I think uh, that was for me personally is, is a good example on how stretching yourself can take you further than you thought you would go. And what did you learn about? helping athletes overcome self-doubt through that process? I learned that ignoring it is not helping it. Uh, Not expressing it is not helping it at some point. There has to be an initial phase where you, as an athlete, admit the fact that you have it. I think a lot of people have it, but they never... It's an undercurrent in, in their day-to-day business, but they, they, don't, they don't admit it. I think looking at it, admitting it is the first step to go beyond it. So I think, and in some cases, even writing it out and then burning the paper or throwing it out of the window or ripping it up. I think there has to be some kind of ritual to it, um, uh, whether that is physical or mental, that really helps. The second thing is then you have to, work at your craft and then realize what you're doing well rather than what you're doing wrong. I think we helped this process with specific video sessions we had and uh, specific focuses we had, because I think that the German, the, the, the German, for sure, the German nature, that was a Freud, uh, the German nature, but the, the human nature is always to look more for the negative or for what's wrong rather than for what's right. And I think a shift in perspective uh, aided with, uh, especially nowadays where we have technology way more available at what player does well and also have other players, teammates telling them what they do well really kickstart the process. And then eventually it's just um, learning to stay in the moment. I think that's a big one, Um, especially when it comes to competition um, staying in the moment and seeing what's right in front of you rather than thinking about what may or may not be going on. Olaf, you have a long way to go as a coach. Hopefully there's a gold medal coming at the Olympics uh, with, your, with your wife. Let's keep our fingers crossed. But I'd like to ask you about legacy and I'd like to frame it in terms of what is the legacy 
you would like to ultimately have left behind you as a coach? That's a big question, Paul. Um, I wish I had an insightful answer, but I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a rather simple person when it comes to questions like this. Um, it's definitely not championships. I know that much. Um, I can barely remember who won, who won the NBA five years ago or three years ago. So I don't think it's, it's, it's championships. If I've helped people I coached or under my supervision, um, you may be assistant coaches sometimes, people you influence to become better people on and off the court. And uh, we all end up saying, realizing that our lives were enriched because we crossed paths. Then I think I fulfilled my purpose, you know? And I, I think earlier uh, we talked about uh, nothing is achieved alone in, in, in life. And I think that's, that's so true. And all these championships and titles, they're nice and I love them. But again, they, they just eventually there's the medal in a box or a T-shirt in a drawer or a trophy in a cabinet. But what really lasts, I think, is who you had to become to achieve it. And if we all become better as people, or as, as a person in the quest, and I have been a part of it, then, then I'm at peace. Olaf, Olaf Lang, I'm very happy that our paths have crossed and we were able to do this interview. I wish you all the best for the coming season and uh, thank you very much for your time today. Well, thank you so much. And Paul, let me say you're doing a great job with this podcast. Um, I'll be a committed listener. Um, thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Olaf. The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi, everyone. It's Jim. You've been listening to our discussion with Olaf Langer. Olaf said, putting a team together and to go through the process of everyone giving up their own individual agenda and coming together as a team is why he loves coaching. The camaraderie, the togetherness that comes from going after a common goal, it's a great metaphor for life because anything of real value is never done alone. It's always done in a team. It's such a powerful message. Many teams in business are currently being tested and looking to find new ways of working through these challenging COVID times. I feel extremely fortunate to be working with a team of people who share a common goal. And as Olaf said, trophies and medals may sit in a drawer or a cabinet, but as who you have shared the journey with and who you have become to achieve success is what you will remember most. Coming up next on The Great Coaches Podcast is the coach of WNBA Phoenix Mercury and the head coach of the Australian Women's National Basketball Team, Sandy Brondello. First thing that I did was just build relationships, get to know them on a personal level, kind of where they're coming from, how they tick. So I kind of understand that. Um, I think I'm very honest, but I'm very fair in my leadership. Like I'm, my, my job is to get the best out of them, be a servant leader. And the biggest thing is, you know, if you get those relationships, it's easier for, especially your culture, your best players have to buy into that. And just before we go, coaches are not usually the type of people who seek the spotlight. If you can put us in touch with a great coach who has a unique story to share, we would love to hear from you. You can contact us using the details in the show notes. Mm -hmm.